our study of the Old Testament book of Exodus, God has continually rescued his people Israel from both slavery in Egypt and from their own rebellious ways. The book concludes with the building of the tabernacle, a place where God will come to dwell with his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. This is like simultaneously the the best and the worst meeting of the year from my perspective. Uh, it's great because it's a celebration. It's a celebration of, uh, especially for freshmen, because you guys have had a wonderful. Um, this is making a noise. I'm gonna put it down there. Maybe it'll stop. Um, you, for freshmen, you guys have accomplished something amazing. Like you finished your first year of college, and so congratulations. Well, you're not quite there yet. You probably turn everything in. Would be a good idea. Um, <laughs> And, you know, for those of you guys that are graduating, you know, this is a huge accomplishment. You're about to graduate from college. It's amazing. And uh, I'm full of excitement and wonder about what God's going to do in and through you as you leave here and expectant that God is going to do wonderful things. But it's also really sad for me. And um, this passage tonight in Exodus chapter 40 is the very end of the book of Exodus. It's the sort of... um, the, the, the stopping point, everything in Exodus has been leading up to this. And it's a very fitting passage for us as we close the semester. And you might be thinking, uh, it didn't really seem all that fitting. We're talking about putting up a tent in the middle of the desert. And I don't really know what that has to do with me like thousands of years later. But the last word for you from RUF for this year is a good one. 
And it's this, that God wants to live with us forever. God wants to live with you forever. Okay, and that's what the tabernacle is all about. Okay, so what I want to do tonight is I want to look at what is the tabernacle, why is the tabernacle, and where is the tabernacle. And I think that through that, um, we'll see Jesus. So what is the tabernacle? I've never, ever done this before. Sam, can you put up the graphic on the screen? Oh, I've never, ever put up a, a graphic on the screen. It makes me feel like a failure as a preacher, but here we are. Okay, a lot of times when people come to something like RUF or go to church, there are people that are really familiar with the thing that's being talked about, and they're like, oh, I've heard this a million times. And then there are people that are like, this is really weird to me, and there's an awkward tension because you feel like you don't belong. Pretty much nobody has any idea in this room what's going on in the Old Testament in general, much less what's going on with this, which is not the beach at Summer Conference, <laughs> by the way. I stole that joke from Daniel Barlow. Um, this is the tabernacle. What it is? Is it's this tent inside this big courtyard, okay? This, the courtyard is about half the length of the football field in the, at the rock and about half the width of the football field at the rock. And it's a bunch of tents and poles and with a big tent in the middle. And um, at first blush, this really just seems like an ornate and expensive campground, okay? Um, which is like everything's covered in gold and all that. But what this is... In the middle of the randomest desert ever, several thousand years ago, is a piece of heaven on earth. Okay, and here's, here's why. That tent in the middle is called the holy place, the tabernacle. Okay, and if you'll see, there's, there's another um, screen inside, another yellow uh, drape on the inside. And that place is called the holy of holies, the holiest place on earth and inside of it is a little piece of furniture okay and that piece of furniture is called the ark of the covenant you may take the graphic down thank you um and the ark of the covenant is a big gold box and it has two angelic beings sitting on top and the top of it is called the mercy seat and what that thing is is it is a throne for god okay it is god's Throne. Um, this is the place where God's presence is coming to dwell on the earth. A huge cloud has descended on this thing, and this is where God is going to live locally. And what it is, is it is a replica of God's throne room in heaven. Okay, does that make sense? God has a throne room in heaven, and this is a replica of it. Our very own Lissy Somerville, whose parents are here tonight. Um, not any parents would just decide two hours before a large group just to drive up here, but glad you're here. Um, Lissy has participated in the National Gingerbread House building competition many times, taking home many accolades. Thank you. Before I met Lissy, I knew she was Anna Somerville's sister, that she raised carnivorous plants, and that she competed in the gingerbread house building competition. I thought, this is going to be magical. And it, is, it has been. And um, she's, she's competed. She, people make replicas of all kinds of things out of gingerbread. The White House, Taj Mahal. Um, Lissy has made a, a replica of the Globe Theater, where all of Shakespeare's plays were. And she's won many awards, and it's pretty amazing. Um, this is a really, those are replicas of the thing, right? This, the tabernacle is a replica of an actual thing. It's a small version of God's temple or of God's throne room in heaven. And so what does that mean? That means that God has a local office on earth. That God has come to be with his people in time and in space. 
Um, now, if you are a keen reader of the Bible, then, uh, which I expect you all are, you will probably realize quickly that God doesn't live on the earth. You know, it's part of his thing of being God. He, he is he's transcendent. He's not an earthly creature. The Psalm 113 says, The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? God does not live on earth. He is seated in the heaven. He is, he is transcendent. He is huge. But it is that God who holds everything together, who created everything that exists, who is in all and through all, who has come to dwell in a real and special way in the middle of this random desert in this tent called the tabernacle. His presence is so overwhelming and real. I don't want you thinking, okay, God is there. And by that, I mean that God is everywhere. Like God is here tonight and I don't see that. God's presence was so real that when it came down, the text says Moses couldn't go into it. Okay? Moses was prevented into going there. So it's not just a replica. God is really there. As far as I know, let's see, William Shakespeare was not actually in your Globe Theater replica, correct? Yeah, okay, yeah. Not as far as I know, he was not. Shakespeare wasn't actually there. God is physically there with them, okay? He's close, but you can't just walk in. Okay, God is there, he's approachable, but you can't just flippantly walk in to be with him. Here's the thing. Only one person could go into that very special room called the Holy of Holies. It was the high priest, and he could only go in one day a year. And in order to get in, he had to put on all these special clothes. He had to wash in this ceremonial basin. Um, He had to offer a bull as a sacrifice for his sin. And then he had to fill the room with smoke and incense so that you couldn't see anything. And then and only then could he walk in to the Holy of Holies one day per year. If he did not do all those things perfectly, he would die immediately when he came into the room. They would actually tie a rope around the priest's foot so that if he dropped dead in there, they could pull him out. You know, because you couldn't like go in and get him because it would just be a bunch of people falling over dead in the room. (laughs) That is how holy this God is. You don't just walk in. Okay. Um, he, he is holy. And so what you have in the tabernacle is a place where the God of the universe, who is completely pure and completely holy, and we are not. It's a place where that God and sinful people can come and be in the same space. Does that make sense? Um, really, it's the tabernacle, especially the ark, is like a transformer. Okay, and I got this from a guy named Brian Habig. I listened to him preach. If you look on a telephone pole, you'll see a big thing that looks like a bucket up there, up there, right? It's about this big. And what that is doing is it's taking the energy that is in that electrical cable, okay? That pure power that if you touched it even momentarily, it would literally blow you away. It would annihilate you, except for that transformer. That transformer takes that power and makes it approachable. And accessible so that my daughter can plug in her nightlight safely. So she can approach and access that power. That's what the transformer does. And that is what the tabernacle is for God's people. It's a place where people, God's people can come and approach God. But why is the tabernacle there? And this is a, this is a question where some of you guys are like, okay, I've heard this. God wants to be with me. Um, God comes to be with his people. I understand that. Why? Why does the tabernacle exist? Or to ask a related question, 
Why did God do all this work that we've been looking at all semester if you've been here in Exodus? Saving his people from Egypt, setting them free with all these miracles. Why did he set up this intricate tent for them? This is the reason. So that he could be with them. Because God's deep desire of his heart is to live with people. God wants to be with us on our terms, on our turf. The the deepest desire of God is to be close with his people. I don't know what you think of when you think, what is God's number one thing? God's number one desire is to be with us. And I've said it before, but it bears repeating one more time. Um, Other religious systems, other philosophical systems, other spiritual ways present you with a lot of opportunities to, for you to move toward whatever the thing is. Your perfect you, or the life you want to live, or whatever the deity. It gives you 12 steps, or 9 easy ways, or 3 fundamentals, whereas you could move toward God. But in the Christian faith, God comes to you. God comes to people. So much so that this is what Jesus says in John 14. Is this microphone making a crazy noise, by the way? It's not? Okay, good. It sounds like it up here. Good. I'm just hearing you crazy noise. Um, Jesus says this in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And you're like, okay, that's nice. If anyone loves me, God's going to love him. That's great. But listen to what Jesus says. And we will come to him and make our home with him. I don't know what your home is like. Okay, I haven't been to most of your homes. For some of you guys, that's really complicated. But for some of you guys, there's a really amazing feeling that you're looking forward to of when you go home. When the semester gets done, you do finals, and then you go home to move your stuff in before you come into summer conference, of course. And you're going to walk in and you're going to be home. That's how God feels when when he comes to be with you. He says, I will make my home with you. Dan Allender, who's a, who's a um, counselor, sort of theologian guy, um, I was listening to him talk recently, and Jen Wainscott, our old intern, mentioned this at the women's conference over this past weekend, but I was listening to Allender, and he made this great point. It's, what do you see when you look in the mirror? Like all of you probably looked in the mirror today when you got up. What did you see? Um, Some of you guys saw a lot of things that you don't like. Some of you guys looked in the mirror and you felt a deep sense of shame because of things that you've done, because of things that you see in the mirror, because there are things about you, about your intimacy, about your sexuality that you feel yucky about, um, that you feel confused about. There are some of you guys, when you look in the mirror, you say, that person there doesn't reflect what I feel in here. Some of you guys are embarrassed when you look in the mirror. Um, and even if you don't come with a sense of shame or embarrassment when you look in the mirror, um, most of the rest of us just look in the mirror and just go, okay, I've seen that face a million times. Uh, and just move right along without noticing anything particularly exciting there. Um, when God looks at your face, every single face of every single person in this room, he is amazed. He's delighted. There is nothing that delights him more than seeing your face. And it's not because he has to. It's because his delight and his joy is you. He's, you fill him with, the, with delight. And if you aren't learning 
that God delights in seeing your face, if that's not something that you're moving toward, you aren't moving toward Jesus. Um, Because Jesus delights in us. And Allender makes this great point. He says, look, most of us are, are not that afraid of pain. Most of us aren't that afraid of suffering. Some of you guys have been through tremendous pain and suffering and will move toward other people's pain and suffering. But I think Alan is right. And he says, most of us are terrified of someone delighting in us. Um, That scares us. And my question for you is, can God delight in you? Can God take pleasure in you? He, He does all this. He comes to be with his people because he wants to. Because he wants to be with us. And it's because of that delight that God makes a way for enjoyment and community with his people by coming to earth. But the last question here is, where is the tabernacle? And as amazing as it is that God would come and physically put himself in a special way into a tent in the middle of the, of the desert and be physically that available, it's really only a glimpse at what God was really going to do. This was just a foretaste, scratching the surface of what God was going to do. There's another passage on your sheet, which I have the right reference for. It is John chapter 1. And I want you just to listen. And even if you've heard this a million times, I want you to listen for the, try to listen for the first time. I hope some of you guys, this is the first time, because that would be really special. And the word became flesh. The word there, what John means when he says that is, for, for Greek people, they would have thought everything exists and is held together by this thing called the Logos, the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. When it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally the word is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That God came to live, literally Jesus came to dwell with us, not by filling up a tent, not by pretending to be human, but by literally becoming flesh. By becoming a human being, the Bible says that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And all that glory and power came in a human person. And here's what that means. Jesus isn't just a piece of heaven on earth. Jesus is the radical aligning of heaven and earth together. Where heaven and earth, God and and, and man, human beings are together. Thomas Goodwin, who's an old dead white guy, but he said something helpful. He said, heaven and earth met and kissed one another. Heaven and earth and Jesus met and kissed. Embraced. It was passionate. They came together. And Jesus is the true transformer. Like I said, the ark is a transformer. He is God approachable. He touches the hand of a little girl with a gentle touch at her bedside who is laying dead on her bed. A 12-year-old girl. He touches her hand gently and she comes back to life. That power and that gentleness together. An old woman who has been suffering from a debilitating disease for as long as she can remember where she just cannot stop bleeding. 
has, runs out of, out of choices, and she comes and she touches the hem of Jesus' robe and immediately feels inside of her that she is healed and that she's no longer bleeding just from touching him. And for the Israelites to be in God's presence in the tabernacle, there was always a fear. If I do it wrong, it's, it's over. I'm going to be annihilated. But in Jesus, on the cross, Jesus is annihilated. He touches the live wire for us. And you remember how John 14 says that God wants to make his home with you? If you love Jesus, God will make his home with you. If you've been paying attention to your own self and not just distracting yourself, that, there will be a big question. How can God make his home with me if he's pure and holy? How can he make his home in me? Why don't I die? Why am I not blown away when Jesus comes to live in me? Because if you're in Jesus, he has cleansed you and he has made you perfectly pure and clean so that God can come to dwell inside of you. Where's the tabernacle? The tabernacle is in the heart of someone that knows Jesus. It's not a localized place where you go to find it. He comes to be in you, to make his home in you. And look, some of you guys have been trying to get your head around all year. What does this mean that Jesus has come and he wants to be with me and he forgives my sins? I can't make you believe that Jesus wants to make his home with you. And that all you have to do is say yes to him. I, can't, it's, I, I literally can't make you believe that, and I don't try to make you believe that. But my question for you is, doesn't it sound good? Is there even a little part of you that goes, I want to believe that? I want to believe that God would be that approachable to me, that humble to me. Um, because look, this is only the beginning of the journey for Israel. They still have 40 years of walking around in the wilderness before they come to the place where God is going to settle them in the promised land. And look, I want to read the last two verses of the passage, and then I want to, I want to say a couple of last things. Verse 36 on your sheet. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Wherever Israel went, until they came to the promised land, God stayed with them. Some of y'all, going home in a couple weeks feels like Harry Potter returning to like four, number four Privet Drive um, to live with the Dursleys, you know, the terrible aunt and uncle. Some of you guys going home sounds like the worst possible thing that could happen right now. Um, and number one, let me tell you, I'm sorry about that. Um, some of you guys are graduating and you're thinking, is this the end of my friend group? Like, am I ever going to be close with people like I'm close with the people I'm with now? What's going to happen to my dating relationship? Um, you're scared because you're moving to a new town and, you, and a new job, and that's freaking you out. Um, or you're staying for grad school, and that just seems awkward because all your friends are leaving. Um, maybe you have no idea what's next, and that job has not called you back, and it's been a month. Some of you guys aren't graduating, 
but you're wondering how you could possibly ever do this for another year. And what I want to leave you with and what God wants to leave us with is that God's presence will never leave you. Um, He goes with you always. He wants his home to be with you. And my mentor has always said this to me, and it's my joy to pass it on and say to you, your best days are not behind you. These are not your best days. Um, In Jesus, the best is always to come. And that means even when you're with Jesus forever, that the next day is always better than the last day. The best is always to come. And I'm just going to close this thing down with the way C.S. Lewis closed it down because he's smarter than me. And the Chronicles of Narnia are amazing. On the final page of The Last Battle, this is what Lewis says. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, uh, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Jesus wants to make his home with you forever. Let's pray. Um, Father, I'm just deeply grateful um, that you would humble yourself to be with us, that you would find a way and make a way that we could come to you, Lord, and we could touch you and we could be held by you. And we could have a home with you and never have to be worried about being destroyed or never have to be worried about you saying that we gross you out or that there's someone else. Um, Thank you that you've made a way because you love people. Because the deep desire of your heart is to be with your people and nothing will stop you from having them. I thank you so much for these friends. I thank you for how much um, they have continually showed me your goodness. And I thank you for the good work that you've done in their hearts and in their friendships, in their community groups. Um, Lord, you are a good, good father. Would you impress upon us how deeply you want to be with us? Not because we deserve it, but because you love us. And would you receive glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.